Welcome back to Grand Rounds Podcast, Season 1, Purpose in a Pandemic, with Jennifer Weiss, that's me, an orthopedic surgeon, and my sister, Leah Weiss, uh, who is the other kind of doctor, a PhD. We are rounding out our first season with an episode with Dr. Porvi Parikh. Um, I'm going to read your, you her Instagram profile because I couldn't sum it up any better. Dr. Parikh is an immunologist and an allergist. She is a contributor at CBS News, CNN, CNBC, NBC, Fox News, and U.S. News. She describes herself as sassy, classy, and optimist who will make you laugh, and she absolutely is all of those things. The other awesome thing that we discovered is that she went to high school at the same school as both Leah and I. She's a little younger, but that's okay. Here we go. And I reached out to you. Um, Leah and I were in the midst of talking COVID. Um, both I had some experiences being redeployed to the ICU, ICU as an orthopedic mm-hmm. surgeon, which were, were, were quite interesting. And I had um, some administrative experience in, in running um, a lot of the redeployment for surgeons in our in our region. And then we also connected with Alex McDonald, um, who mm-hmm. is one of the spearheaders of the This Is Our Shot campaign. Right. Oh, and, nice. yeah. and you and I, I know, had connected um, on social media in the past right. um, around some of the mask wearing, and you've been very active, and I've seen you interviewed um, about COVID. And so I said, Leah, I'm going to reach out and see if she would mind coming on and talking. Tell us what you're doing these days, and, um, and then I'm going to start asking you some stuff about COVID and social media and um, your fancy news presence. No, yeah. Well, I, I don't know how fancy, I don't even know how all of that happened. It was all a whirlwind, but, um, but yeah, basically, you know, I'm an allergist and immunologist, um, and I've been very involved in terms of the COVID-19 vaccine trials. So, um, you know, from the get-go in May, um, you know, I was very involved in the Pfizer trial and then AstraZeneca, and now actually it's exciting. This week, we just started uh, Sanofi, um, just started their clinical trials as well. So it's it's a really exciting time, I think, uh, in general in science, because there's like so much innovation, uh, things are moving so quickly. Um, and then I think I have a unique perspective because I was in New York City during that surge, you know, from like March through May, and it was crazy, you know, sirens were going 24 seven, you know, I didn't see my family for three months. It was just a crazy time, you know, and, and um, you know, I can actually continue to work because you know, all of my patients that are, uh, you know, they have lung disorders, they have immune disorders. So we kept our office open because as the hospitals were overwhelmed, we didn't want our patients to, you know, have to go there. And, you know, it just would have been the perfect storm. So, so yeah, it was very interesting, like, uh, you know, being in New York City during that surge, and then getting involved in the vaccine trials, um, I just wanted to help in some way, you know, so I was like, if I can't be like in the ICU, or in the ERs, like um, dealing with the acute patients, I was like, let me at least try to be part of the solution, you know. And I had done uh, some vaccine research uh, back when I was a resident um, in Cleveland Clinic, and back when the H1N1 pandemic was going on, even though it was nowhere near this, you know. Uh, and that's kind of when I was like, oh, you know, this I didn't realize this is part of my field because, you know, Dr. Fauci, who's also an immunologist, was spearheading all of that too back then. I mean, he's. <laughs> He's been dealing with pandemics for like 40 years. So, so I was like, okay, this is a way I can help out. And, and yeah, I've been, I've gotten really involved. And then it was kind of nice to be, to see it unfold, you know, and, and 
what a historic time this was to have a vaccine ready within eight months, nine months. So it was kind of uh, cool to be part of that. And I think it made me feel good to contribute in some way because otherwise it, it, you just feel hopeless, you know, when you're in certain situations like that, if you, if you feel like you can't contribute in some way. So, but I'd love to hear your experience too. Like being in the ICU after being an orthopedic surgeon for so many years, that must have been crazy. <laughs> It was, it was, and it was, um, yeah, thank you for asking. It was, it felt first and foremost, really good. Like you were saying to be able to help out in some way. Mm -hmm. I think that's what so many of us who are physicians and even not physicians just really want to be doing right now. Um, I also had this interesting intersection of, um, that I got my second, um, vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, um, the morning that I was doing my first ICU shift and my ICU Mm -hmm. shift was a 6P to 6A. um, And I got hit with big side effects um, in the middle of the night. Oh, really? So this intersection of experiencing the vaccine and Mm -hmm. and being there to help, um, it was overwhelming and uh, amazing all at the same time because I got to experience both sides. I got to experience the doctors and nurses being so good to me when I wasn't feeling well. And and also just how small of a deal that was and how grateful I was to have the vaccine in my arm watching all these really sick patients. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. (laughs) Um, For for you, I'm curious about you, you, I think you used the word hope. And I'm curious about how the transition of hope for you happened, um, and not to politicize it too much, but from the transition of, um, of uh, our, our presidency um, mm-hmm. and being so close to, um, to the vaccine studies and implementation and being such an uber expert in that, did you feel a transition to your daily work, to your purpose, to your hope um, as we transitioned um, uh, in our country? Yeah, that's, that's actually an interesting question. So, I mean, I think the, the day-to-day of like all of our jobs as physicians, right, I feel like doesn't really change with politics because at the end of the day, you know, we do the same thing. We go, we take care of patients, we do what we have to do, we go home. So, that so much didn't change, you know, I think I, we started feeling that like hope, I guess, around, uh, you know, November. And interestingly enough, it was like very coincidentally timed uh, with the election when companies uh, announced their results. And, and I think, you know, this is just my own thing. I think that was purposely done for whatever reason, you know, so it definitely, I, I don't know if it was necessarily tied to the, you know, presidency or changing of administration, but it was just very coincidental that all of those results came out at that time. Then in December, both uh, Pfizer and Moderna had their FDA hearings for emergency use authorization. So definitely as the year turned, you know, the hope got more and more, you know. So, um, yeah, absolutely. And then uh, just in general, the fact that science is less politicized now is very Uh, refreshing, you know, Um, minus, you know, what's going on in Texas, what was announced yesterday, but it just felt like through so much of the pandemic, um, it was all politics. And it was very frustrating for all of us in the medical community, because politics really should not be influencing these like medical decisions or public health decisions, you know, so um, once the vaccines were approved, it felt like politics were less involved. And it felt like everyone was on the same page. 
Um, and then especially for everything in terms of masking and CDC guidance. And, you know, we started seeing Dr. Fauci again and all of the hearings. So that was nice. But then, you know, yesterday that announcement was made that, you know, Texas is opening up everything and removing the mask mandate. So that kind of felt like a little PTSD again, because I'm like, we're not ready yet. I'm like, we're so close. Like, trust me, I more than ever anyone want to just flip the switch back to normal. But, uh, you know, in doing it too quickly, that just delays our normal, you know. So, uh, yeah, so definitely. Overall, though, at least it's still hopeful. <laughs> it's still, I'm still optimistic because it's like a lot less of involvement of uh, politics and science. It's how it should be. It's, that the scientists are now taking the lead and the politicians should just be supporting that, you know, rather than the other way around, that the politicians are trying to be the scientists, you know, and, and then we're like, wait, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> when you, do, I, I'm curious, do you have a relationship with Fauci other than your interview with him? Or was that? Yeah, like through the clinical trials, we don't get to interact with him frequently. I, I wish it was more so, but, um, you know, our uh, specialty allergy and immunology is fairly small. So many of us, uh, and not me, unfortunately, I wish I was, but many of my colleagues were trained by him. Um, so my partner actually knows him like very personally. He knows him as like Tony from Brooklyn and, and many people do of that generation, you know? Um, so they know him well because, you know, you, you get to know everyone in your field, you know, all the fellows, you meet at all the academic meetings and he's always spoken at all our meetings. So yeah, I, I know him, but not as like closely as I wish I would. But the nice thing is every now and then, because some of our studies are through the NIH, through their COVID protect, uh, prevention network. So he will get on some of the calls. So that's always fun because he's very interactive and he's like, he's very nice to everybody and, you know, <laughs> you know, treats everyone with respect. So even if you ask, uh, you know, what you may think is a very simple question, he's like, that's a great question. And, you know, and he takes the time to go through it. So I wish I interacted with him more, but, you know, I'm grateful for whatever <laughs> moments that I do get. <laughs> I feel like Leah, this is a perfect time for you to hop in with a question, especially since we just discussed Brooklyn. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> well, I'm curious what's on your mind these days as we're getting closer um, to turning a quarter. Um, what are some of the questions that are top of mind for you or when you're looking through the news, like uh, confusion that you see other people spinning mm -hmm. that is important to you to clarify? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I think is with the vaccines, because now that we have a third one that's approved, Johnson & Johnson, uh, people are very quick to judge it and say, you know, well, oh, it doesn't sound like it's as effective as Pfizer and Moderna, because when they first came out, you know, they had, and still they have these like 95% efficacy numbers and Johnson & Johnson has 62%. So I think people are missing the boat uh, or the big picture here because, you know, Johnson & Johnson actually prevented death 100%. Uh, so it will save your life for sure. Uh, Johnson Johnson also prevented hospitalizations 100%. So though, to me, if I got sick with COVID-19, those are the two things I would not want to happen to me. I don't want to be in the hospital and I don't want to die, you know, or anybody I care about. So uh, it's a very good vaccine. And the other thing too is, you know, it was tested during a time when those variants were rampant, whereas Pfizer and Moderna really weren't. They were kind of wrapping up their data I mean, now obviously longitudinal studies are continuing, but you know that data came out before those variants really we knew about them. So um, you kind of have to take it in a grain of salt because Johnson and Johnson still had that great efficacy even in South Africa. 
it still prevented death and hospitalizations and where that variant is very uh, prevalent. So, you know, I, I wouldn't, um, I think people, I think are unsure when they hear 62% overall versus 95%. So I think that's a big misconception. Um, you know, a vaccine isn't meant to be 100% cure. You can still get sick. The whole point is that you don't get as sick and you don't get those terrible complications uh, from COVID-19. Um, that's one misconception. And then I think there's a misconception with the variants in general. Um, you know, people are frustrated. I understandably like, why do I still have to mask? Now Fauci saying to double mask. Uh, why do I still have to distance if I'm getting the vaccine? But the whole reason is, is that, you know, if that virus can't replicate from person to person, then it's less likely that these variants will even come up. And then it's even more likely that these vaccines will continue to be very, very effective because we wouldn't want to be in that boat where they weren't. So I think people don't fully understand that concept because they might think, oh, there's a variant now. I shouldn't get this vaccine. It's not you know, effective for it. But actually, it's the opposite reason. You should get it so that we stop further variants from coming where a vaccine doesn't work. And that's the same reason why you still have to mask and still have to distance. So um, I, I know everybody's impatient and frustrated, but it's just that's just how how it is. <laughs> but I think those are a lot of misconceptions people have. The um, dispelling of myths, I think, is such an important role that that I've seen you playing, um, and I'm so um, appreciative of that. And I have I have another question about a myth or urban myth that I've been hearing, which is mm -hmm. there is this um, concern being voiced that there's going to be like a two tier um, sort of healthcare disparity in where the vaccines go, given that the Johnson Johnson doesn't require the deep freeze mm -hmm. and it doesn't require the two shots. And so it's a, I, my understanding, a better vaccine to send to the rural areas. Right. And it's got a little bit lower percentage. And so I'm hearing these myths of, you know, um, worried about disparity in healthcare, which is a huge worry for all of us. And I'm right. curious, would answer um, or, or uh, debunk that myth because um, I think I think that's one of our roles right now, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest bigger disparity is if those regions have access to no vaccine, right? So if anything, this is bridging the disparities because without it, they have nothing, you know. So this is actually giving uh, fighting chance or improving the odds for those places that. Uh, rural America or urban areas that may not have like the facilities to store a colder vaccine. But that being said, the good news is, um, you know, both Pfizer and Moderna are now saying that their vaccine is stable uh, at room temperature. I mean, again, this data has to be um, peer reviewed. Moderna, we already know you can keep in a regular refrigerator, which is great. So that vaccine can still be given to some of those areas. Um, but Pfizer was the big concern because that was the one that needed that deep freeze and the sub-zero refrigerators. But they also announced that they think that their vaccine um, can, for a certain amount of time, be okay at um, uh, in a normal refrigerator or at a certain amount of time at room temperature too. So again, hopefully that will level the playing field even more so. But I, I wouldn't look at it as a two-tiered system. I think it's actually a good thing because otherwise uh, those areas may not have had access to any vaccine and not just in the US, I think globally too, um, because we want to have uh, effective vaccines um, reach the whole world because otherwise it's kind of, I always look at it and I stole this line from the UN Foundation who I volunteer with that outbreak anywhere is an outbreak everywhere. So even if in 
you know, rural Africa or Asia or wherever, where have you, there is an outbreak that could easily end up in the U.S. next week. You know, it can be in New York City. I mean, even this pandemic, right, started on the other side of the world. So um, if anything, I think this is bridging those disparities, not making them worse. I have a question for you. It's a little bit mm -hmm. of a um, zig from zigzag, but I'm curious um, what your thoughts are following on this pandemic, the kind of secondary mental health pandemic, or what your observations are on um, clinician burnout mm -hmm. from perspective. And I just have to say, I'm like struck and inspired by how positive and energetic you are. Um, and, <laughs> just wait five hours no, <laughs> by the end of the day I'm like no kidding <laughs> different person <laughs> but I'm what you're seeing in colleagues and and uh, yeah thoughts on the the aftermath of this and the trauma that you know so many um, clinicians and others have been through in the context of this like how do we think ahead um to resource people and and buffer as much as is possible and um, you know, and, and, and I'm also really interested in your thoughts about how this pandemic has has pointed to structural changes that need to be made and what's top of mind for you as you're thinking um, about your role and, and what you're seeing. Right. No, um, it's definitely it's a real problem because even before the pandemic, um, you know, burnout amongst healthcare workers was already reaching a breaking point. So even pre-pandemic, the statistic was that like one physician commits suicide every day. Um, so that's that's staggering, right? Every single day we lose a physician to suicide. That's terrible, you know. And and it's a field where it's a very gratifying field. It's a very rewarding field. So I don't think it's the actual field itself that is causing physicians to do this. And this didn't occur like 40 years ago. Like my parents are both physicians when they trained. They worked far longer hours in residency that none of these restrictions existed, but they didn't experience the burnout. And I really think it's all uh, systemic changes. Unfortunately, that's contributing to physician burnout. So I always get frustrated when, you know, administrators and other people, well-wishing people are saying, okay, well, you know, we just need to make time for mindfulness or meditation or yoga. And I, I'm like, all of those things are important, but if you're not going to fix the system that you're forcing, you know, physicians to work in, it's not going to take care of the problem because that's not the issue. You know, physicians love working hard. We love taking care of patients, but that's not where the burnout is coming from. It's coming from paperwork. It's coming from just like endless um, restrictions, regulations, this loss of autonomy. Like an insurance company today like, dictated to me what I could and couldn't prescribe. And I'm like, but they don't know anything. They didn't, you know, they didn't go to medical school. They don't know my patient. They're not spending the time with the patient. So I think all of these external forces, unfortunately, have contributed to burnout. And then when you throw in a global pandemic, unfortunately, I think it's just amplified it. And, and I'm really worried about what's going on with my colleagues now, but then even the aftermath of it, because just the way that we've seen even government like treat the pandemic, it's almost a slap in the face because you know, this is the first time in probably a hundred years, like we're always stressed out at baseline, right? Because we have a lot of stress that goes into taking care of people, which we understand we signed up for the job, but now there's the added stress of fear for our own lives, right? There's not enough personal protective equipment, like getting sick. Thank God there's a vaccine now, but before that there was always that fear, like what if I'm the one that falls sick and I get so sick that I'm one of those 
fatalities from COVID-19 or those terrible complications. And then the fear of also getting your family members sick. Like many of us, there's so many stories where we isolated ourselves for months, you know? So now you're dealing with all of this stress, but you're dealing with it alone without your normal uh, support system. So it's just a perfect storm. And it just already like kind of, uh, we're at a breaking point. And I'm really worried that this is just going to break it more so. I think there was a statistic that uh, I think already like um, 6% of physicians have like left for good. Many I know have retired early as a result of the pandemic. Um, so yeah, I'm really worried what will happen after that. And I was even speaking with actually some of my colleagues in Texas last night after this mask um, thing was announced that they were lifting the mask mandate and opening everything up. And they were like on the verge of tears, not just physicians, nurses as well. They said, you know, this is this is terrible. Like we were already just like barely holding on. And then you hear that. Right. And you're like, you, you, it really, uh, I think, exacerbates the problem. So I don't know what the solution is, but I'm, I'm very worried about it um, because it was already a huge issue. It's um, Leah and I actually um, lost a cousin to COVID. He was a physician oh, and wow. um, did he was he was older. He was in his 80s, but he was seeing patients without proper PPE. And um, so that has hit close to home for us. And I started writing um, in a very um, outspoken way at the beginning of the pandemic about the lack of PPE and you know, we all saw construction happening and N95s being worn for things that weren't medical. And those things were just, I agree, they're, they're worse than paper cuts. They're big cuts. They're mm -hmm. big um, injuries that kind of happened to us. And we have put it aside to take care of patients and take care of what we do. And then we have on top of it, those of us who are going back into elective surgeries um, and elective care, because all of these patients have been, you know, just sitting back patiently waiting mm -hmm. and um, how that's going to feel for everybody jumping kind of out of the frying pan into the fire. Um, I'm also uh, really um, interested in the other similarity that we all have, which is our dad was a physician. And I agreed, burnout, he, you would have, if we had said the word burnout to him, he would have been like, what's burning? Like, I don't yeah. understand. <laughs> um, he, exactly, loved, yeah. he loved what he did. And so you have, you're like a kindred spirit because Leah and I spend so much time talking about don't blame the canary. Um, you know, yeah. it's the coal mine that's toxic. Um, so there must be a lot, um, a lot of parallels going on in our, in our thought processes. Um, how do you, as uh, I kind of try and um, give respect to your time and, and start to think about, um, about uh, wrapping us up, how do you personally kind of take care of your own psyche so that you can come to work with all of the awesome energy that we're seeing from you and give yourself to the world with that? What kind of um, uh, rituals, I don't like the word self-care, I think, I think it's like, <laughs> Right. <laughs> but but what do you do to help yourself um, sort of present to the world in such a great way like you do? Yeah, no, I, that's a great question. And I'll be honest, there have been moments where I've felt like completely overwhelmed and like as recently as like last week or the week before where I'm just like, you know, I'm you know, angry at everybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. But I think it's really important to recognize when that's happening and take that time to like detach and be like, OK, it's all right if I don't answer my phone every single time it goes off or it's okay. I started actually, I turned off notifications on all my social media and that was huge, you know, 
Um, and then the weekend's a true time you have off, like be off, you know, like I'm guilty of this too, but it's just so tempting to like bring your work home, quote unquote, and just continue to do things constantly and be available constantly. But I think forcing yourself to detach, you eventually learn like nothing bad happened. It was going to happen. You know, like I, I can be unavailable and the rest of the world will survive, you know? And I think that was the biggest challenge of just being me being okay with it just because I was so used to being always available and I would feel guilty if I wasn't and then I realized at the end of the day doesn't um, make a big difference either way um, and then I'm, I'm much better than when I am available again whereas before when I'm always available I start resenting everybody even like people I care about I started you know you even start resenting like your staff or your patients or your, uh, your husband or you know everyone but then if you take that time for yourself that doesn't develop, you know, and you're actually much better when you come back and you're not, you know, um, this other version of yourself that you don't want to be. And then the second thing is um, support from other people, I think has been the biggest thing to get me through this pandemic. Even though we can't necessarily see all of our friends and family members socially, like, you know, there's been um, obviously family, right? But there's also been like a key number of friends that have really like, we've leaned on each other, whether it be through phone or, you know, video chats like this. And I think it's really helped just to kind of vent, even if they don't have the answer, but they'll just listen to me complain for 30 minutes. And then I feel much better. It's like what they say, um, a problem shared, you know, is a problem halved or something along those lines. But I think it's really true. Just kind of just ventilating helps a lot too. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I want to ask you to tell our listeners what your handles are to follow you and any other kind of places you would like for us to find you or guide people to find you. Yes. Yeah, so um, I'm on Twitter um, and it's my first name, last name. So it's at Purvi Parikh MD. Um, and I'm on Instagram um, at um, it's Pani Purvi NYC. So P A N I P U R V I NYC. It's actually like a play on uh, one of my favorite Indian snacks. So <laughs> that's called Pani Puri. Um, and then I just recently joined Clubhouse, which has been a really fun avenue. And it's a, yeah, it's the same handle that I have on Twitter. It's my first name, last name, MD. Um, and that's, that's a lot of fun because it's like audio only. Um, it's, that's a nice way actually to chat and get things off your chest, especially amongst people who might be going through the same things. And it's nice that it's audio only. So you don't really, you know, you can be in your pajamas and <laughs> relaxing and just, you know, just chatting with people. So, so yeah, those are probably the three things that I'm on. So <laughs> um, when I'm not taking a break from them. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm also going to um, circulate uh, the, the link to that last interview that you did, because that was, that was really good too. Um, I'm so grateful for you taking the time to be with us today. Um, Leah, anything else you want to add? Just, it's been a total pleasure. And um, I'm, i yeah, really great to hear your thoughts and appreciate you making the time. So season one of Grand Rounds podcast, Purpose in a Pandemic, is in the books. Thank you, Dr. Corby Parikh, for wrapping that season up with us. And please stay tuned for season two coming soon. We are going to have Grand Rounds podcast season two, Disruption. We're going to talk with some of our favorite disruptors. Can't wait to be back again with you soon.